0: Yeah, thank you. It's good to be back with you all. You guys are just having too much fun. Yeah, I'm glad Steve had us stand on, standing on the promises. It feels appropriate. one of the promises I often think about is, I am with you. That's one of the promises I stand on that often comes to mind in those moments I need to be reminded that the Lord is with us. Well, please turn with me to Mark chapter 7. We'll be continuing in our series. Kevin finished up chapter 6 last week, and we'll continue now with chapter 7 here. Out back in my woods, there are a couple of massive oak trees. I mean, they're really big. Uh, I, I don't think if you had two grown men, I don't think if they put their arms out like this around the tree, I don't think their fingers would touch uh, if they were trying to hug it. Not that I'm a tree hugger. Uh, when I first saw them, I thought, wow, amazing. Just a great old oak tree. There's so much grandeur, you know. There's something that's amazing to think. This thing's probably been here a couple hundred years. It's just amazing. And I, Of course, my utilitarian mind thought, how much firewood could I get out of that? You know, That's of course where my mind went. Uh, but then I noticed something on the bark as I got up close. In fact, there was a, a split on the bark. Now, that's kind of strange. So I, I walked up and I got close and I, I put my eye up to it. It was wide enough I could look into it. I could actually see light on the other side of the tree. It was hollow. I don't know how it was still standing, but... I could see light. There was a similar crack on the other side and there was light shining through that thing. I don't even know how that's possible. Uh, But uh, today in our passage, we're going to encounter something similar but even worse. Uh, We're going to find a people who walk as spiritual giants in Israel. People who are incredibly impressive on the outside But on the inside, they are hollow. In their love for God, there is a complete hollowness. Worse than the oak tree that I saw. Let's read in Mark chapter 7. Read down through verse 13. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me as korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. Let's pray. Father, we love your word. We have just praised you for your open word. We praise you, Lord, that you have spoken to us. And we are so glad when we come across passages that are uh, a sweet fragrance to us, an encouragement, uh, a bandage on a wound, Lord, a healing. And Lord, we're thankful for words that cut, words that cut for the purpose of healing. And I pray that you would help us. And we invite you, Holy Spirit, to examine our hearts this morning. That you would reveal to us any areas that that need to be renewed. And then we pray that you would do that work. God, we ask that you would strengthen us, open our hearts to your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the key things that Mark is calling us to here, think, as we think about it, is, is the call to accept Jesus and his word as your sole authority. Accept Jesus and his word as your sole authority. And in doing that, this passage, I think, would call us to turn from hypocrisy and to submit our tradition to God's word. Let's look first at turning from hypocrisy here in the first eight verses here. Now, Mark 7 uh, seems like an abrupt shift from the stories that we've just been going through. We've seen Jesus send out his disciples. They come back. They've healed. They've taught. Uh, There's been multiple miracles, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus calms a storm on the Sea of Galilee, walks across the water first, and all these miracles are taking place, and then now we're in confrontation. Now we're in conflict. It might seem a little abrupt, but really, if we've been reading along in Mark's gospel, we see that this is nothing new. Uh, In fact, conflict has already taken place. Back in chapters 2 and 3, we see a list of conflicts between Jesus and the religious leaders. And in chapter 3, it culminates in the Pharisees going out with the Herodians, plotting how to kill Jesus. So we already know at this point, there's a backdrop of tension that's running throughout Mark's gospel. Uh, We know that the Pharisees are already conspiring to kill Jesus. This is just the next step in that ongoing conflict. Our passage says that the Pharisees gather and they come along with some scribes from Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem should have been the city that accepts the son of David as king. It should have been a a, a city that flung its gates open to accept Jesus, the son of David. Instead, as we see in the Gospels, Jerusalem is the seat of opposition against Jesus. Oh, that's striking. That's not the way it should be, but that is what Jesus faced. These leaders come to Jesus, uh, and they apparently come to examine him, to try to find some way that he's going to run afoul so that they can continue to build their case against him. Now, remember, we, we've seen they want him dead. They're looking something to hang him on. Uh, but they can't, get, they can't get him on anything from Scripture. Uh, they're around him. They, they can't condemn him for anything from scripture, Jesus is perfectly sinless. Nobody could find fault with Jesus for his moral behavior. Jesus never transgressed God's word in a single point. He perfectly kept all the commands of God's word. Uh, The Pharisees were hard pressed to find anything to condemn him for. Uh, But when mealtime came around, they found something to attack him over. Verse 2 tells us that they saw that Jesus' disciples were eating, but they, they were eating, it says, with defiled hands. They didn't wash their hands before they ate. The charge comes in verse 5. They say, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? There's the challenge against Jesus. His disciples were eating with unwashed hands. Now, Mark takes a moment, and he takes a little aside. Maybe in your Bible, verses 3 and 4 are in captions. He has to explain this. Uh, he explains how uh, the Jewish people washed their hands when they went to the marketplace and they came back. They, they had always had this custom of washing. It's, uh, in fact, as Mark tells us, it's not just their hands, but it's a whole host of things. It's basically everything. They're washing it. Uh, and I think this is one indication for us that Mark is probably not writing to a primarily Jewish audience. If he was writing to a primarily Jewish audience, he wouldn't have to explain this. They would know it. They'd know the custom. Mark is probably writing to a primarily Gentile audience, and so he's having to explain these customs. I think it's also important for us to to notice as well that this isn't isn't about germs. They're not washing their hands so they don't get sick. Uh, This is... This is a, a ritual practice. This is a matter of uh, ceremonial cleanness. It's not hygiene. Sorry, kids, you're not off the hook if your mom tells you to wash your hands before dinner. Uh, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, the Mishnah, which is a collection of Jewish writings that regulate life, they have all sorts of prescriptions for cleanliness and, and how to... How to regulate your life uh, so that you're separated from uncleanness and these ordinances go well beyond anything that the Old Testament talks about. They're supposed to be kind of a fence around the Old Testament and that way nobody could ever come close to breaking anything from God's word because there was all these additional rules outside of that. That was kind of the idea. Uh, These kinds of washings were quite normal on a day-to-day basis in Israel. Uh, But they were expansions beyond what the Old Testament called for. And it's just at this point that the scribes and the Pharisees think they've got some dirt on Jesus, or at least some dirt on the hands of Jesus' disciples. Uh, They ask a question, uh, but we know it's not just a question, right? Uh, This is a challenge and probably a condemnation when they ask him, why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? Why do they eat with defiled hands? Uh, They ask him about his disciples, but that's probably meant to reflect on him. If he were any sort of a good master, he would certainly have instructed his disciples to walk in according to the tradition of the elders. I think that's the idea here. Uh, They think that they have closed the snare on Jesus. But actually, it's Jesus who has them in his crosshairs. I bet they didn't expect the way that he responded to them. They thought they had Jesus where they wanted him, but he had them where he wanted them. He responds in verses 6 to 8. I'll just read it again. And he said to them, well did Isaiah the prophet, excuse me, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it's written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. I mean, ouch. Jesus does something surprising here. He doesn't just defend himself. In fact, he goes on attack. And he goes and eviscerates their tradition. He calls them out as the hypocrites that they are. The charge is that they have left the commandment of God for the traditions of men. We're going to return to that more in depth here soon. But first I want to focus on the specifics of what Jesus says from Isaiah About them. Notice first that Jesus says that Isaiah prophesied about the Pharisees and the scribes. He's saying Isaiah said this to you. And now certainly what Isaiah writes is a rebuke. This is from Isaiah 29. It's intended for his original audience. It applied to the people that he spoke to. I think what's going on here is that the Pharisees, the religious leaders here, they are so organically tied to the rebellious people of Israel that it's fair to say that Isaiah is speaking to them. Listen to what Jesus says about them through Isaiah. First, he says that they honor God with their lips, but not with their hearts. It says their hearts are far from God. In, in Greek, it's, it's distantly far. It's super far. Their heart is very far from God. In so many ways, they say the right things, but their words are as hollow as that oak standing in my woods. You know, the, the Pharisees and the scribes, they were like fake flowers. They sure looked nice, but they're not alive. You know, they're busy doing the right things and saying the right things about God and to God, but they're dead. They wouldn't know God if he came and spoke to them face to face. And he did in Christ And they didn't recognize him. They rejected him. Rather than accept Jesus, they condemn him. And they find fault with him because his disciples didn't wash their hands. Their honor of God doesn't go any deeper than their lips. And so Isaiah also says that their worship is in vain. They might sing praise and say the right things, but it's empty. It's vain. It's pointless. God is not truly honored by that kind of praise. Now, I think it's easy for us to look at the Pharisees, the scribes, and condemn them for this. And and that's right, they do stand condemned. Uh, But I don't think Mark includes this story for us simply to look at them and say, Oh man, those guys are really bad. Uh, The Holy Spirit inspired Mark to write this so that we've got a chance to examine our hearts as well. Hypocrisy is not only a problem for the Pharisees. If, I, if what Isaiah said could apply 700 years later in the times of Jesus, I guarantee you it can apply today. Again, we naturally we want to start thinking about other people that we know that are hypocritical. That's our our heart's maneuver. You know, we want to think about somebody else. See it illustrated in somebody else's life, and that's fine. And that might be true, but it's not enough. We have a tendency that we don't want the hard words of scripture or the hard words of jesus to ever land on us and and so we might want to think about others but we should think about ourselves here Uh, when we hear a hard word from scripture we want to be like the disciples who at the last supper when jesus says that one of you are going to betray me they start asking is it i lord is it I? And they go around asking, is it I? When we hear a hard word in scripture, we want to be open. Lord, is there any way that this is speaking about me? Hypocrisy comes uh, from a, a difference between what we portray on the outside and, and what is actually going on on the inside. The Greek word here for hypocrisy is hupocrites. Hypokrites. You can probably hear the word hypocrisy in that. It's where we get the word. Uh, uh, in fact, the, the word hypocrite here was actually, it was the title of the actor. In the Greek theater, actors, that, that was what they were called. They were hypocrites, and it wasn't necessarily a slam. Uh, what, what they did, you know, today in, in acting, often we have makeup and costumes, those kinds of things. In the ancient world, What they did in Greek theater was they had masks. They would put on another mask and they'd play that part. Uh, And I think that's what hypocrisy does. And and Jesus is using that word here, I think, for that reason. Uh, Hypocrisy masks up what is true on the inside. But you know what? Jesus can see through that all day long. So we should ask, do we wear a mask when we come to church? I'm not talking about COVID or anything. Do we wear a mask when we come to church? Is what we're showing on the outside consistent with what is true on the inside? Do we say we love God with our lips, but disregard what he has told us inwardly? Do we portray ourselves as good Christians on the outside, and then actually on the inside we're coddling secret sins? You know, if you don't think that you have any struggles with sin whatsoever, you might have even deceived yourself. It's possible that you've played the part of the hypocrite so well that you've convinced yourself. That's certainly the case with the Pharisees. They thought they were blameless in everything. I pray that's not true for any of us. You know, hypocrisy is also seen in motives, in our motives. We can ask the question, why do we do the things that we do? Why do we live our lives the way we live them? Elsewhere, Jesus teaches about people who pray publicly so that people can hear them pray. Or when they give, they have a trumpet sounded so that everybody can see the fact that they're giving. Uh, that, Jesus pointed out the wrong motivation there. Now, I'll share a personal story here. I, I remember the day that the Lord laid me flat regarding my ambitions and motivations for ministry remember i was a sophomore in college and i was in a hard season Uh, it was a time of humbling it was a time that the lord was pressing me down and in one of those moments i was troubled and i was reading in isaiah and i read god's word in isaiah where he says my glory i will not give to another those words struck me like i had been punched in between the eyes God's Holy Spirit revealed to me that at least part of my motivation for ministry was being somebody famous. You know, I wanted to be the kind of preacher or teacher that people looked to. You know, I wanted to be that guy who's writing books and always oh, invited to go to conferences and just give you a little bit of my wisdom, you know. That, I know it's really pathetic, but that was in my heart. That, that was driving me along, and it was killing me. It wasn't any good for me. You know, in my mind, I was thinking, sure, I'd I'd be giving glory to God, you know, but there, of course, there'd be enough left over that I'd be basking in it myself. Uh, But I tell you what, God didn't want that kind of a minister. God doesn't want that kind of a minister. And so he kindly used the scalpel of his word to cut that ugly growth out. But our fight against sin, uh, to be honest, is not a one and done matter. I'd be lying if I said I never let my pride get the best of me. But God is not going to give his glory to another. The Pharisees desired the praise of man more than the honor that comes from God. And let's just be honest, we're all tempted in that way. We're all tempted to put ourselves at the center of the world. We're all tempted to even distort the teaching of scripture around us and to use it for our advantage rather than to know God through it, rather than to to look into it and find him and to give him glory. We're all tempted by that. You know, take time. Take time. Ask God to reveal to you any areas of hypocrisy in your life. And you know, if if he does reveal it, don't despair. It's a mercy when God reveals sin to us. If it's there, it's a mercy. He's revealing it. Give it over to him. Cling to your crucified and risen Savior. He died for you. He died for your sin. He died to free you. If he reveals it, It's a gift to you. Accept it that way and seek his face. Uh, With the help of the Holy Spirit, live as God has called you in truth. Now the last piece of this quote from Isaiah uh, is is about the teaching of the Pharisees. And that's going to lead us into our next point. In light of this, in verses 9 to 13, I think we want to submit our tradition to God's word. Now, in verse 9, Jesus gets downright sarcastic and biting. I want to read it again. He said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Jesus says that they're really good at knocking over the word of God so they can erect their own tradition in its place. And Jesus goes on in verses 10 to 13 to give a prime example. We all know the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. It's where Jesus goes. He, he draws attention to that. Then he goes to Exodus 21, verses 17, uh, where the death penalty is called for if somebody reviles his father or mother. I think what Jesus is doing here is he's stacking up very, a very clear example in Scripture. Uh, he, he's giving them something that's just right there on the surface. Uh, there, there's nothing convoluted about this command of God. You know, it doesn't take a scholar to decipher what God has said here. You know, though it might take a scholar to screw it up. You've got a teaching here so clear as the fifth commandment, but the tradition of the elders contradicts it. Jesus says that if a man devotes something to God and calls it korban, which just means it's a gift, um, then the tradition says that he can't ever use it to help his parents. Now this might seem a little us. What exactly is going on here? perhaps what's envisioned here is that a young man might vow something to God, to give it to God, uh, and, and he pledges it. And perhaps this is kind of like the idea of the faith gift. You know, he's, he's pledging it to be given to God. It's going to be given at a later date. Uh, does this in his youth. Uh, and perhaps as time goes on, his parents grow older. They become in need. They're no longer able to sustain themselves the way they were supposed to, or not they're supposed to, the way they were able to previously. And so he begins to realize well, maybe this was rash. Maybe I should have thought about this and cared for my parents in this way. Uh, So what does he do? Uh, Maybe he wants to help his parents, but he's pledged his finances to the temple. Well, what's he supposed to do? So he goes to the Pharisees and he asks them, what can I do? And their response is, sorry, buddy, you pledged it. End of story. The result is that God's Clear command is contradicted by their tradition. The Pharisees and the scribes make void the word of God in this manner. Jesus goes on to say, and many such things you do. You know, this is just the tip of the iceberg. This is just an example of uh, many places where the tradition of the elders contradicts and contravenes the word of God. Again, it's good for us to think about our own lives in light of this. What should we take away from this for ourselves? Is Jesus saying here that all tradition is always evil? I don't think it's that simple. The point of this passage and the next, as we'll see next week, is to focus on the heart, not externals. And so tradition is certainly condemned when it becomes a replacement for true faith in God. But the New Testament also affirms a positive place for tradition as well. Listen to the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11:2. He says, "Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you." Again, 2 Thessalonians 2:15. Paul tells the Thessalonian church, he says, "So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So right there are two passages where tradition is commended. So what do we make of that? We've got Jesus condemning tradition here. We've got Paul commending it here. Now we can't go to the place, some people will say, well I like what Jesus has to say, but I don't don't like what Paul has to say. I had a conversation with a woman before we were a lot to explain here. We were at a—I don't know—it was like an old-fashioned sort of day. We were old-timey sort of thing. She was doing blacksmithing, and uh, she—I was talking to her about blacksmithing, and I was cranking this little old-fashioned bellow. I—I'm explaining too much here, but, uh, anyways, that—that that was her basic line. Well, I like Jesus, but I don't like Paul, you know. And, and I said, "Well, Jesus sent Paul out. He says if you receive them." Uh, he says to his disciples, if they receive you, they receive me. Uh, So we can't separate Jesus and Paul and say, I'm going to listen to one but not the other. So if we can't go that route, then what do we do? What do we do with a condemnation here and a commendation here? I think we could compare tradition to potatoes. I bet you've never heard potatoes and tradition compared together, but hang with me there for a minute tradition is like potatoes and that when they're good they're good but when they go bad boy do they go bad you can do a lot with a good potato make them into chips make them into fries make them into tater tots I don't know what kind of dark magic they use to make a potato into a pringle but they do it uh, there's a lot you can do and a lot of good that can come out of a good potato I worked at an evangelistic food shelf in the cities and on Friday mornings we got fresh fresh produce and we got potatoes literally by the ton i learned some spanish working with the hispanic community there i've forgotten most of that spanish but one phrase i'll never forget is malas papas bad potatoes oh bad potatoes stink unlike anything else and it's almost never one potato that goes bad right they they go bad together they go bad in clusters oh they're bad I, i won't describe it anymore Uh, But if you get bad potato juice in your clothes, it is game over. I, I think tradition is like that. If your tradition is firmly planted in the gospel, in the clear teaching of scripture, then it's good. But history is just full of examples where tradition has gone bad. And boy, does it stink. It literally stinks to high heaven. False tradition is a stench in the nostrils of God. So, what do we do with tradition? You know, maybe we should just denounce any tradition and call it a day. You know, if potatoes can go bad, maybe we should not have anything to do with them. You know, take up a potato free diet. You know, look in the store for things that got the little PF on them, potato free. Uh, Maybe we just get rid of them. I think that's far better than becoming a slave of bad tradition. It's better to disregard tradition than to disregard the word of God, but I don't think that fairly deals with all of what the Bible has to say about tradition. The word for tradition, when Jesus commends it, or condemns it, and Paul condemns it, is paradosis. Uh, The word just simply means something that's handed down. Uh, It's something that's been handed down. The roots of our English word for tradition mean the same thing, it's something handed down. Uh, Whether we like it or not, we have a tradition. Unless you invented what you believe from scratch, you've inherited some sort of a tradition. If your parents or a teacher has taught you anything about God, then you've received some tradition, the teaching that has been handed down to you. Now the question is, is it good or is the tradition bad? You know, how do you evaluate if your tradition is good or bad? I think there's only one answer to that question. The Bible must guide and judge your tradition. Does what has been handed down to you come from Scripture or from human wisdom? The Bible is our ultimate authority. The Bible alone reveals the heart of God for us. If your tradition contradicts God's word, then throw it out. Pitch it like that stinking, oozing, nasty potato. The Pharisees and the scribes had a tradition that was contrary to Scripture. And they not only exalted it over God's revealed word, but they exalted it over Jesus himself. And they condemned him with their tradition. Now that is a rotten tradition indeed. This passage is calling us to accept Jesus and his word as our authority in our lives. You make Christ and his word the guiding authority. And you let him correct your tradition so that what you hand down to somebody else, what you teach to somebody else, actually reflects the word of God, actually reflects the heart of God rather than simply your own wisdom. We need the Holy Spirit to help us in this. And Jesus has promised him to us. It's another promise we stand on, the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's right for us to invite the Spirit to search us, to invite him to correct our hearts, our minds, our motives, of anything that's contrary to the heart of God revealed in his word. Well, let's close in prayer together as the men prepare for communion and Erica comes to play. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you.